All right, let's bow our heads. Dear Heavenly Father, thank you for this morning. Thank you for lifting us up and building us up and making times like this just times to rejoice in. Bring us together as family in a unity that you've ordained from eternity past, Father. Thank you for the word of truth. Thank you for giving it to us. Thank you for illuminating it in our souls. We have finite minds, Father, but you give us that supernatural ability to understand truth that sets us free. We're just so grateful for times like this, for moments where we're able to ingest this word of yours and just be refreshed by it, Father. We pray for those in the congregation that can't be with us this morning. We pray for those that are still lost. We are most grateful and thankful, of course, for your son's work to make times like this beautiful times of rejoicing. We do just ask for your blessings on this morning's message. May it be edifying for our souls. We ask this in Jesus Christ's precious name. By the power of the Spirit, we do pray. Amen. Again, part 69, Proverbs 17, Wisdom. This past week has been a lot of fun from my perspective. Uh, Thursday's message really stood out because it started off with a stark reminder of whose life this is that we are actually living here on earth as believers. Gave us that nice reminder, whose life is this after all? And it kind of does that service for us of separating us from any kind of innate selfishness. Like we have that habit of making, you know, gathering unto ourselves, starting even with our lives. But the Bible has something to say about that. Who actually possesses this life that was paid for sort of tears us away from any kind of primitive selfishness even you know so I've really enjoyed that um, think about it when Christ paid the price to redeem you from the slave market of sin you couldn't pay the price When he paid that price to redeem you from the slave market of sin, is it fair to say that he owns you now? Is it fair to say that you are his possession? Is it fair to say that you have been made his slave now? Go to Romans 6.12. Romans 6 verse 12. So I think the Spirit's been just trying to do that primitive work in us to separate us from any type of selfishness that we might have, even regarding our own lives. It might be one of the subtle things that Satan in the kingdom of darkness sows in this world 
that, you know, all things and everything were just so self-absorbed and self-centered and possessive. And the Spirit's saying, get rid of that. Be separated from that kind of bondage. Romans 6.12, Let not sin therefore reign in your mortal body to make you obey its passions. Do not present your members to sin as instruments for unrighteousness, but present yourselves to God as those who have been brought from death to life, and your members to God as instruments for righteousness. For sin will have no dominion over you, since you are not under law, but under grace. What then? Are we to sin because we are not under law, but under grace? By no means. And here's the key point. Do you not know that if you present yourselves to anyone as obedient slaves... You are slaves of the one whom you obey, either of sin, which leads to death, or of obedience, which leads to righteousness. So this is the point the Spirit began with on Thursday that really sets the stage for us in terms of perspective. In other words, Romans 6 really does that good work in us. It says, look, whether you like the idea or not, you're a slave to someone. You're either a slave to Christ as a believer, or you're a slave to this world, to the God of this world, to the world itself, to that unrighteousness, that whole sphere, in other words. You're a slave one way or the other. That's just something we have to accept because that's what Holy Scripture tells us. This is the point the Spirit began with on Thursday again, to give us perspective. I mean, think about it. And this is just a, a sort of a discreet example to help drive this home. If you were, you know, so-called a, a free man or a free woman, and then you committed a crime and were destined to die in prison. And then someone came along and paid the price for your crime. But you were then that person's slave. That was the end result. It's a form of redemption, in other words. So this whole thing just transpired. You were destined for a life in prison without parole. You're going to die there. Someone comes along and says, I'll pay the price, but you're going to, have to, you're going to be with me the rest of your life. Okay? You're going to be mine because I redeemed you. I paid the price. Do you want that? Now, wouldn't you imagine that your perspective before your sentence and your perspective after your sentence and after this work had been done, would it be different? Would your perspective be different? How would your perspective change at each stage of that scenario? Wouldn't your understanding that you were now someone's slave have a ripple effect in the core of who you are? 
I mean, becoming someone's slave has endless implications, right? The only difference with us is that being a slave of Christ is the most incredible blessing you could ever possibly ever dream up because he is a perfect, loving master. That's the difference. Being a slave of his is a blessing beyond human comprehension even. He said, not only will I pluck you out of the slave market of sin, but you're going to be my slave, personally. And oh, by the way, I'm perfect. And oh, by the way, I'm really the manifestation of love. I will care for you. I will make sure you are taken care of. I will love you always. I will protect you always. Hmm. The implications are fundamentally the same, but being his slave is an honor and a privilege and a gift. Again, look at verse 16. Romans 6, 16. Do you not know that if you present yourselves to anyone as obedient slaves, you are slaves of the one whom you obey, either of sin, which leads to death, or of obedience, which leads to righteousness? But thanks be to God that you were, you who were once slaves of sin, have become obedient from the heart to the standard of teaching to which you are committed, and having been set free from sin, have become slaves of righteousness. I am speaking in human terms because of your natural limitations. For just as you once presented your members as slaves to impurity and to lawlessness, leading to more lawlessness, so now present your members as slaves to righteousness, leading to sanctification. For when you were slaves of sin, you were free in regard to righteousness. But what fruit were you getting at that time from the things of which you are now ashamed? For the end of those things is death. But now that you have been set free from sin and have become slaves of God... The fruit you get leads to sanctification and its end, eternal life. For the wages of sin is death, but the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. And so, up here on the board, here's something right out of the gate this morning, that slavery is real for you, and unfortunately with our you know, with our country's history, uh, the word slavery tends to drag this awfulness with it, but it shouldn't, not fundamentally, not the way that the Bible speaks of it. So get that out of your system. Get that out of your system. Is there bad slavery? Sure, there is. But this form of slavery is beautiful. So slavery is real for you. Since Christ has redeemed you from the slave market of sin, you are his possession. Titus 2.14, we'll read that in a moment. There are eternal implications of this that you ought to be ever so grateful for. Being a slave of Christ is the best 
thing you could ever hope to be. In reference, the alternative is being a slave to sin. We just saw that in Romans 6.16. Just consider those implications. So slavery is real. Go to uh, Titus 2.14. That's the reference, the other reference there. Titus 2.14. So much wrapped up into this one verse, especially in terms of what we've been learning lately, what the Spirit's been teaching us from the pulpit as of late. Titus 2.14. <clears throat> Titus 2.14 reads, Who gave himself for us to redeem us, to redeem us from all lawlessness and to purify for himself a people for his own possession who are zealous for good works. who gave himself for us to redeem us from all lawlessness and to purify for himself a people for his own possession who are zealous for good works. This one verse is so very telling because it organizes and orchestrates the three aspects of our messages as of late so perfectly. So let's take a moment to dissect it. First, Christ gave himself for us to what? Redeem us. This means that he paid the price for your sins. God had a just issue with you as a sinner. And Christ decided to pay that price for your sins. To redeem you because you were stuck hopeless and helpless, incapable of paying that price. So that's the first thing. He gave himself for us to redeem us. He paid the price for our sins. And, you know, I was thinking about that. By human standards, that's not exactly a fair exchange, is it? Some of you wouldn't pay a nickel for one of your, your brethren. He died for you. He paid the ultimate price for you. For what? For you? If you know anything about yourself, you say, mm. <laughs> not really a fair deal there, but if you're offering, <laughs> right? In human terms, that's how we would think about it. And that's fair to think that way. It's not, it really, in human terms, it wasn't a fair exchange. It seems infinitely unfair to Christ. Amen? It's ridiculous. And here am I, I have, you know, that's like paying a billion dollars for a jelly bean. Or even worse, a, a dead cockroach. So the only thing that makes sense is understanding your value to him personally. You might say as a human, I don't see it. I don't see it at all. 
matter of fact. And from a human perspective, you'd, you'd be right. But, so then the only thing that makes sense is that you must have value to him, personally, for him to be willing to do that. That knowing that you'd accept his payment and that you'd become one of God's precious children for all of eternity, to him was worth the price he paid. Again, firstly, Christ gave himself for us to redeem us. Second, he purchased us, quote, for his own possession. For his own possession. In other words, he said, I will pay the price, but you'll be mine. You're going to be mine. For all of eternity, you're mine. I will lay down my life. I will die for you. I will pay that price. I will propitiate God the Father. I will do that because you have that kind of value to me. I will possess you for his own possession. And so that really plainly states that we are his. We are his. Peter wrote the same up here on the board, 1 Peter 2.9. But you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. So that's the second piece here from this magnificent verse. Again, look at Titus 2.14. Let's read it. Who gave himself for us to redeem us, that was the first point, from all lawlessness and to purify for himself a people, number two, for his own possession, who are zealous for good works. Again, as his possession, we are slaves of the perfect master, Jesus Christ our Lord. And then thirdly, we have a purpose now that we didn't have before. We are designed to be zealous for good works. He said, I will purchase you, you will be mine, but you will also be zealous for good works forevermore. And part of that reasoning, the impetus, this zealousness, comes from all that the Spirit's been teaching us about gratitude. I mean, all you have to do is think about um, what he did for you, what he accomplished for you on the cross, and you're just overflowing with gratitude. Because you know you didn't earn it or deserve it. You know it deeply. So we're designed for good works. Paul echoed this same purpose up here on the board in Ephesians 2 verse 10. For we are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. 
So we also have this beautiful purpose. We don't just become these sort of meek little slaves that just sort of hang out twiddling our thumbs. He says, "Uh uh-uh, I'm going to use you to my glory. I'm going to change you in such a way that you're going to be able to partake in fruit of the Spirit. That you're going to be empowered by the power of the Spirit to do things supernatural, things that are, by all human standards, miraculous. I mean, is it not a a miracle that some of you are even here? I know some of you from long days ago, and you were so arrogant, right? Ridiculously arrogant. I would have never expected to see you here this morning had I looked forward. That, my friends, is a miracle. Amen? Uh Uh-huh. A miracle. Some of you are lucky to be alive. Lucky to be alive. That's a miracle. Because God had plans for you, and somehow He stopped your own ridiculousness, your own death, your own testing God or putting God to the test. He stopped it all so that ultimately he could save you and then have this incredible purpose for you as his own possession that you should walk in good works because that's what he predestined for you. So again, the third aspect in view here in our primary verse is that we have purpose. We have purpose. Again, look at verse 14, Titus 2, who gave himself for us to redeem us from all lawlessness and to purify for himself a people for his own possession who are zealous for good works. So here's the scene. Imagine a person who's homeless and sick and facing death each day. And so their life is, by their own account, worthless even to them. And then someone comes along and offers to lift them out of their state of destitution. But the deal is that they must be that person's slave forevermore but a blessed slave, not an abused one. Don't you think that that person will be happy and willing to do whatever their new master wishes? Don't you think there might be just a little bit of gratitude motivating them? Don't you think? left for dead, without hope, helpless, basically in the gutter, didn't even think their own life was worth anything? Don't you think they might have a little gratitude towards their new master? The one who redeemed them, who paid the price for whatever debt had compiled in their life to where they were stuck on the street, homeless, sick, ready to die? 
Don't you think they would have a little bit of gratitude? Don't you think they would be happy and willing, zealous for good works? Whatever is pleasing, don't you think they would want to learn whatever is pleasing to you, Lord? And Lord just means a, an addressing of a master. Whatever is pleasing to you, Lord. Sound familiar? I want to do that. I owe you my life. My life is yours. Because I was as good as counted as dead. And nobody else gave a crap. And along came you. What do you think of that? Don't you think that person would be happy and willing to do whatever their new master desires? You bet. They will be so grateful to their master for choosing to pluck them out of certain misery and ultimately death that they will be eager to please him. This is our life in Christ as his slaves. It's a privilege. Don't you forget it. It's a privilege to serve our master, our redeemer. Again, verse 14, who gave himself for us to redeem us from all lawlessness and to purify for himself a people for his own possession who are zealous for good works. Again, here's the opening principle up here on the board. Slavery is real for you. That's not a bad thing. Matter of fact, it's a beautiful thing. Because whether you realize it or not, you were a slave to unrighteousness before. You were always a slave. Maybe you're like, no, I wasn't. I was on my own person. You're, that means you're a slave to unrighteousness. Right? That alone proves the point. Huh. Since Christ has redeemed you from the slave market of sin, you are his possession, Titus 2.14. There are eternal implications of this that you ought to be ever so grateful for. Being a slave of Christ is the best thing you could ever hope to be. The alternative is being a slave to sin. We saw that in Romans 6, right? Just consider those implications. I mean, we've all lived in it in the past. All you have to do is go back to that time before you were saved and measure. What was your life like? What was your sense of purpose even? Contentment, peace, happiness, hope. You know what it was. You might have been playing a game. Maybe if you were like me, because you had certain requisite gifts that the world esteems highly, you were winning the game. And the rest of the world is like, man, you're just all of that. I'm like, yeah, kind of in. Right? Winning the game, which is a whole other challenge, by the way. Right? Um, but God's never fooled. And neither are you if you're honest. And now looking back, if you're honest, you know exactly what I'm talking about. That you've been plucked out of destitution. Another wonderfully telling passage. Go to Colossians 1.13. 
which speaks directly to what I just taught. Colossians 1.13. It's a miracle. It's a miracle that you're even here this morning. It's a miracle that your ears have been opened, that your eyes can see what the Spirit's saying to you. It's a miracle. It's nothing short of a miracle. Do you understand? You could not see before. You could not hear before. And now the Holy Spirit's literally touching your soul and saying, do you see it? I'm turning on the lights. I'm opening up your ears. I'm turning up the volume. Colossians 1.13, He has delivered us, saved us, delivered us from the domain of darkness where you were a slave to unrighteousness, by the way, and transferred us to the kingdom of His beloved Son in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of of sins. How about one more passage on this that speaks to the fact that we aren't even just slaves. That that aspect of being saved, that's not even the only aspect of it. We're not just slaves. That's just one aspect of our new life in Christ. We are also children of God. And as with any father with an estate to his name, we have access to an inheritance. And this inheritance will have its full glory when we make it to heaven, of course, from our perspective. Go to Ephesians 1, verse 11. One verse, in other words, it gets better. It gets better. You deserved nothing. And now you have an inheritance? You went from being broke and destitute in the gutter to being made part of a royal family? What? Oh, you're just that special, are you? (laughs) Uh, Ephesians 1.11 In him we have obtained an inheritance, having been predestined according to the purpose of Him who works all things according to the counsel of His will, so that we who were the first to hope in Christ might be to the praise of His glory. In Him you also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and believed in Him, you were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit, who is the guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it, of course, in heaven, to the praise of His glory. So not only do we have the other aspects, the beautiful aspects of slavery given to us in Christ Jesus, we also have been given an inheritance as children of God. Again, up here on the board, 
Since Christ has redeemed you from the slave market of sin, you are his possession. There are eternal implications of this that you ought to be ever so grateful for, like being made a child of God. Being a slave of Christ is the best thing you could ever hope to be. The alternative is terrible. And that's where you came from. And that's why your heart should, go, should bleed for those, even in their own ignorance, that are destined for the lake of fire. Not because of the gnashing and pain and that. That's obviously part of it. But think about what they're missing out on. Think about how much could be theirs. So I hope you see why this one verse is so very powerful, especially within the context of our messages as of late. Are you still at Titus 2.14? All right, go back there real quick, please. So this one little verse just does so well for us in our curriculum as of late because it brings in these three aspects. Titus 2.14, who gave himself for us to redeem us from all lawlessness and to purify for himself a people for his own possession who are zealous for good works. We were given this principle on Thursday, worth reiterating here, and it's a principle that really makes us think in practical terms, up here on the board. Seeing it all as truth, with God there is always perfect synchronicity, harmony if you would. He orchestrates everything perfectly in our lives. Our messages, the order, the timing of the messages. Some of you are like, man, I really needed to hear what the Spirit's been saying already this morning. It's almost, I get this so often, you might be shocked. It's almost like the Spirit was directing this message to me personally. He was, and that's the beauty of God, the Holy Spirit. He's able to do that for a multitude with a single message. And if I would ask each one of you separately to write down on a piece of paper, what did it do for you, it would be different. It's a miracle. With God, there is always perfect synchronicity. All aspects of growing up in Christ work together for good for, good for those who love him. Romans 8.28. Let's capture this reference up here on the board. Romans 8.28. And we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good for those who are called according to his purpose. Do you love God? Do you? Are you grateful for his grace? Are you thrilled at the prospect of being a slave? Perspective is everything. As we noted this past week up here on the board, poor perspective guarantees poor living. I don't know about you, but 
whenever I lose my, my bearings, my perspective, my life goes to crap. I'm sorry I keep using that word on a Sunday morning. Don't be offended. But there are much more accurate words to describe what I'm thinking that I can't use. Okay? And you can imagine them up all you want. So I'm being kind. Certainly doesn't capture how I feel about it. But when I lose my, and you can say this to yourself, when we lose our perspective, our lives go to pot. Guaranteed. Not even kind of like, well, no. Guaranteed. Poor perspective means your perspective, your perspective is now disoriented to God's. You no longer have divine perspective, divine viewpoint. You now have some other perverted version of it. Something you probably got from, oh, I don't know, TV. Internet. Smartphone. Radio. Satellite radio. Serious satellite radio. Scott, I'm serious. Get it? You see what I did there? No. Right? Wherever you're getting it, your own human flesh, because it, it desires, it has lusts for things that are ungodly, and then you start justifying stuff, right? And, you, and if you look back, and you, you forensically, you look back and go, how did I end up in such a wreck? And you just watch yourself ratcheting away. Right? Each day, just complicating things a little bit further. Then you do this thing and this thing, they add up to this thing. Then you do this thing, this thing, they add up. Then you, you know what I'm getting at? And you just keep drifting and drifting and drifting. And your perspective is now not anywhere near God's perspective. And then you wonder why you're so miserable. It is guaranteed. Guaranteed poor perspective results in poor living. Because as this goes, this goes. You understand? What's going on up here is what comes out of your legs. You know, you can't even see straight. The corollary is this. Good perspective guarantees good living. So says the Holy Bible. Good perspective. Orient your life to me, says God. Read your Bible. Understand what is pleasing to me. Understand good perspective and be set free. Mm -hmm. Understand good perspective. It's not straight pipes. <laughs> I don't know. Maybe they all went to church this morning and now they're rejoicing. But my fear is that they didn't. And they're out just having a joy ride and disrupting us. All 750 Harleys. I didn't think there were that many people in Dighton. They're obviously transplants. Right? Good perspective guarantees good living, though. It's that simple. If you're, I don't know how to say it. I mean, I can say this as a pastor. You know, the Bible does say imitate his faith, so I'll share it. I mean, this is God's honest truth. Like, whenever my perspective goes, is derailed, my life derails. Like, literally. It's that simple. 
Whenever I lose my bearing with him, I lose my bearings in life. And then I'm miserable. And it's awful. And the only thing that ever corrects it is this. He says, you got to return to me. you got to come back to me. If you want any sense of bearing, any sense of peace in your life, you have to be lockstep with me, says the Lord. That is an impossibility, my friends, if you don't read your Bible. If you don't take in whatever the Spirit gives you from this pulpit, from the blogs, from all of it, whatever's available to you, you should consume it, in- including your time. Do you feel, you know what I'm saying? Including your time. Good perspective guarantees good living. If you're wondering what good perspective looks like, we saw it last time up here on the board, Psalm 37, 7, Be still before the Lord and wait patiently for him. Fret not yourself over the one who prospers in his way, over the man who carries out evil devices. But, 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 but they get, but, but, but they're so happy. But, 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 but they got money. But, but, but they got that. But, but they got that thing I want. They got who I want. They got where I want. They when I want. You know what I'm saying? It's always somebody else that's derailing you. Now your eyes are no longer on Christ. They're on the Joneses. But I, but I want what they have. My wife is a hag. I want, the, I want the, the pretty little thing over there that's flirting with me. The one I met on Facebook. I want, I want that one. My husband's a slob. I want the one with the six-pack. Who's, who's texting me at midnight. I want, I want that stuff. I want stuff now. I want what, what I want. I don't want God's provision for me. To hell with God's provision. I'm not going to be still. I'm not going to wait around while God makes up his mind on making me happy in ways that I think are, ha- that are good for me. I'm not going to wait around for him. I've waited long enough. I'm going to take, this, take these matters into my own hands. Fast forward. What happened? You happened, jackass. You happened. That's the problem. You didn't wait on God. You weren't patient, not even one iota. The gnat beat you. Patience of a gnat, nobody. The gnat beat you out in terms of patience. So what did you do? You ran off with your own plans, and you made your own plans, and you said, I'm not waiting for God anymore, because I'm not happy. How'd that happen? You lost your perspective. You're no longer still. You're not, ah, God, whatever you want. Right? Just Even just saying that, my shoulders went down. Be still, will you? Relax there. God's got everything under control. And he's got his best design for you. Be still before the Lord and wait patiently for him. Now, if that even seems a little bit too, 
I don't know, ambiguous or nebulous or I don't know what other Scrabble word I can come up with, but out of reach. I don't know. Here's another way to think about this since the Spirit's giving us practical things to think about up here on the board. Very simple. Here's some perspective. Focus on loving others while God loves you. I just had this discussion with someone yesterday. I can't remember who it was. I think that person's listening to my voice right now, so don't get mad at me. Right? But deliverance really is, look, just, you focus on loving others. It's the most amazing thing happens. You ready? You stop focusing on yourself. You stop taking matters into your own hands. Because you're not preoccupied. Not, think about how the Spirit started this morning even. It's my life. I can do as I choose. It's my life. And if God's not going to make me happy by my standards, it's my life. I'm going to do it myself because I've got no more patience for God. That's a person who's completely self-absorbed. Preoccupied with self and then making decisions based on what's going on up here. And those decisions are terrible and therefore poor perspective guarantees poor living. Da, 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 da. And they're the ones, fast forward, fast forward, why? And as a pastor, it's, I wouldn't wish this on anyone, but I see this dysfunction happen. It's like clockwork. I look out here and I hear and I see and I see people making decisions that take their eyes off of Christ. Next thing you know, I go, watch this. Some period of time from now, depending on the severity of the situation or the slipperiness of it, they're that person. Why? I'm like, I'm literally, I remember teaching you. This is how amazing God is. I remember teaching you literally on that topic the same time that you decided to go off. So God was like, I'm going to, I'm going to send that bald idiot to stand behind the pulpit and tell you stuff on my behalf to protect you because I can see where you're going. And you go, la, 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 la. Right? I don't hear anything. Ah, that's just the bald guy's opinion. So you write it off as a human opinion. You don't, you don't even think that God the Holy Spirit works through this vessel miraculously. Trust me, it's miraculous. If you knew me, you'd know it's miraculous. La, 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 I'm not listening. Six months later... Two months later, I don't know, whatever that time, a week later, whatever that thing is, it's always the same result. I don't put principles up there, poor perspective results in poor living, guaranteed, for my health. It's because I've seen it over and over and over and over again. Half the people that have left here, I saw it coming, and there's nothing I can do. Nothing. Except teach. I'm like, oh, I hope this person hears this because I can see what's going on. I hope this person hears this because I can see what's going on. 
and I hope and I pray and I push and I get crazy and then people laugh and then they just, they just screw it. They say to hell with it. I don't care. I'm not going to be still. I'm going to do it my way. And guess where they're at? They're not here. Maybe they're on the back of one of these straight pipes. Woo! I found my man. Right? Woo! Let's go to Rhode Island. We don't even have to wear helmets. Woo! Right? Or the idiot guy. I found my woman. Really? She's not even a believer, you dummy. What are you doing there? Honestly, what are you thinking? Where is that going to end up other than the garbage pail? And you with yet another broken heart. You haven't learned the first ten times, dummy? Seriously? You fall? This is not, I don't say this stuff for my health. This is really important right here. Focus on loving others while God loves you. In other words, get your eyes off of yourself. Get your eyes, just like Christ said, just like the Bible says, just like Paul wrote, esteem others even more important than you esteem yourselves. Do that. Make that your habit. Make that your strategy even. Every time you start getting self-absorbed, and you know what it looks like, that self-absorption, it's like turns in and misery comes with it. It just like starts, and you're like, I'm getting miserable. Stop it right there as a strategy and say, who can I focus on? Who can I love? Who has God put in my life that I can express his love to? Who can I do that for? And magically, miraculously, that misery just goes poof. Because now all you care about is the other person. And you let God take care of you. Does that make sense? The strategy, it's unbelievable. It's ridiculously simple. And it works every time. Every time. That's what good perspective looks like. I don't know how else to teach it. That's literally what it looks like. And I've even given you a strategy this morning on how to pull it off. It's not just, you know, fluff. It's not just, wow, that's really inspiring, Pastor Ed. Let me write that one down. And then when I come back five days later, only in the church I do this, I open up my notebook and I look, oh, yeah, there's that really inspiring thing he said last time. I don't ever take it to heart. I don't actually ever do any of this stuff. I just think it's inspiring. This isn't, I mean, I don't know what to say. But this is beautiful perspective. Focus on loving others while God loves you. Again, you might be like, you know, wow, wow that's great perspective. You know, hey, thanks, Pastor Ed. But I don't want you to just jot it down in your notes or make some mental note of it. I want you to take it to heart, deeply so. I want you to really let it sink in to the point where you are 100% convicted by it. Not like, oh, that sounds like a good strategy. No, that is the strategy. 
Well, that sounds like one of the options I can pull out when I'm feeling a little lumpy. No, 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 that literally is the strategy. I mean it. And I want you, why? Because I want you to reap the benefits of loving others. Regardless of who and what they are to you, whether friend or foe. Well, this is where it gets interesting. Go to Luke 6.31. Luke 6.31. I mean, that's what I want for you. That's what God wants for you. That's what's pleasing to Him if you really want to know. He doesn't want His children to be miserable. Luke 6.31 And as you wish that others would do to you, do so to them. I kind of like it when someone expresses Christ's love to me. I don't know about you. Do you like it? You know, I mean, when it's obvious, when it's plainly obvious. I mean, it should be right now because you've got someone doing it. Who's been doing it now for almost an hour. Do you like it? When someone expresses his love toward you, I love it. Okay, then, guess what? Sometimes you're the instrument. And sometimes being that instrument in that moment actually delivers you from your own misery. How perfect is that? Everyone wins. Sounds like a win-win to me. Sounds like the right thing to do. Sounds like a winning strategy to me. Good perspective guarantees good living. Well, here's a wonderful statement from Jesus. And as you wish that others would do to you, do so to them. If you love those who love you, what benefit is that to you? So he's making a point here. For even sinners love those who love them. If you do good to those who do good to you, what benefit is that to you? For even sinners do the same. In other words, he's saying, stretch, my friends. Don't just do this to people you care about. Stretch, stretch outside of your comfort zone even. And if you lend to those who, whom you expect to receive, what credit is that to you? Even sinners lend to sinners to get back the same amount. But love your enemies and do good and lend, expecting nothing in return. And your reward will be great and you will be sons of the Most High. For he is kind to the ungrateful and the evil. Be merciful, even as your Father is merciful. Judge not, and you will not be judged. Condemn not, and you will not be condemned. Forgive, and you will be forgiven. Give, and it will be given to you. Good measure, pressed down, shaken together, running over, will be put into your lap. For with the measure you use it, it will be measured back to you. You focus on loving others. Let God love you. That's what he's saying. He said, don't worry about you. You'll get yours from me. You focus on giving to others. Remember, it's not just this. Receivers, it's give. This, this is immaturity. This is maturity. Right? This is what you do when you grow up in Christ. You say, I believe God. And he's telling me to love others and he'll take care of my back. He has my back. I give, he gives even more abundantly. 
I give more abundantly, he gives even more abundantly. He doesn't run out. I give more, he gives even more. You follow? That's what maturity looks like. And you're blessed. Your socks are blessed off when you believe it, when you live it. Up here on the board, as we've been learning for a while now, speaking of love, principally speaking, I've taught this many, many times, love, true love, godly love can't help but express itself. It's like this. You know when you have like a, you know, not a secret, but you know what I'm getting at, right? You get so, oh my God, oh my God, oh my God, yeah. Wait till I see you. Oh, yeah, you get it. I get this new candy. It is unbelievable. I got to take you to this new ice cream shop. You're so excited, right? That's what it's like. You have that kind of love in you. You're like, I want everybody to have this. Even my enemies. Look at them. They're miserable. I want my enemies to have this. This is so good. I want this. This could change them. And you're right. But that's a whole salvation topic. But you're so excited. You want others to understand God's love. You want others to see God's love. You think it's a privilege to be in the, in the path of his love, to be expressive of his love. You're giddy over it when you're in it. There's no better place to be for you or for others than abiding in the sphere of love, of God's love. In other words, hey, I'm about you, but I am madly in love with Jesus, and it's the best. Why don't you come over here? Right? Right? Come over here. Like, oh my God, oh my God, oh my God, you got to see this. You ever done that? I can't see. Well, stop staying behind the tree. Look at the full moon's out. Come on, come on, you got to see this. Right? I can't see. Get out of your own way. Come over here. Stand. You got to stand right here. Right? And you grab him by the shoulder. You go like this. You ever done that? Right there. Right? And your arm's like over their shoulder. Trying to help them out. Close one eye. Jeez. <laughs> Come over here, though. So you, too, can be in love. So you, too, can experience this miracle that you didn't have before. And even, don't, is it not fair to say that you want even your enemies to experience that? I do. Because then I'd know they would be delivered. They'd no, want, they'd no longer want to bite and gnaw at my own back. Because they too would be in love. And we might become friends even. Perspective is everything. I think I'm going to stop there uh, because it's on the hour. We're going to have Scott come up and do communion service. Uh, gentlemen, uh, please hand out the elements. You can go to the slide, Todd. Yep, okay.
right, good morning, everybody. Thanks, Pastor Collins, for the special privilege today of doing this, and uh, thank you for the wonderful message. Um, the Spirit is, and always has been, trying to set us free from bondage to ourselves. And um, it's just amazing and wonderful, and hopefully we appreciate how He brings all these things together, and He wants us to grab a hold of them and make them our own between us and Him. As came out in our lessons this week, redemption implies a transaction has taken place. And that's why our lives now belong to the Lord. As we just heard, he purchased our freedom with the terrible price that he paid. The Lord showed me a little string of pearls regarding this yesterday as I was reading my Bible. And he's given me permission to share that with you today as we celebrate the Lord's Supper. So if you want, you can follow along by going to Psalm 49, verse 7. And may the Holy Spirit string whatever he needs to in your soul together right now. Psalm 49, verses 7 through 9. Truly, no man can ransom another or give to God the price of his life. For the ransom of their life is costly and can never suffice, that he should live on forever and never see the pit. But look at verse 14. But God will ransom my soul from the power of Sheol, for he will receive me. Look at Psalm 50, verses 7 through 15. Psalm 50, verses 7 through 15. Hear, O my people, and I will speak. O Israel, I will testify against you. I am God, your God. Not for your sacrifices do I rebuke you. Your burnt offerings are continually before me. I will not accept a bull from your house or goats from your folds. For every beast of the forest is mine, the cattle on a thousand hills. I know all the birds of the hills, and all that moves in the field is mine. If I were hungry, I would not tell you, for the world and its fullness are mine. Do I eat the flesh of bulls or drink the blood of goats? Offer to God a sacrifice of thanksgiving and perform your vows to the Most High. And call upon me in the day of trouble, I will deliver you, and you shall glorify me. Look at verse 23. The one who offers thanksgiving as his sacrifice glorifies me. To one who orders his way rightly, I will show the salvation of God. Look at Psalm 51, verse 15 through 17. Psalm 51, 15 through 17. O Lord, open my lips, and my mouth will declare your praise. For you will not delight in sacrifice, or I would give it. You will not be pleased with a burnt offering. The sacrifices of God are a broken spirit, a broken and contrite heart, O God, you will not despise. 
And finally, look at Psalm 52, verses 8 and 9. But I am like a green olive tree in the house of God. I trust in the steadfast love of God forever and ever. I will thank you forever because you have done it. I will wait for your name for it is good in the presence of the godly. And my friends, this is what we're doing right now in the presence of his saints, in the presence of the Lord. The only sacrifice we have left to possibly give is thanksgiving. He made the final and ultimate sacrifice on the cross, being the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. If we are here today, like the Jews, sacrificing animals in the Old Testament, but without a heart of thanksgiving, that is not pleasing to God. Obedience without a grateful heart is just religion. As we saw in Romans 6 today, he wants obedience from the heart. What more than a grateful heart? The sacrifices of God are a broken spirit and a thankful heart. So let's bow before him and simply be thankful for his great and horrible sacrifice to save us from eternal judgment. This is how we give glory to God as we gather together to celebrate the Lord's Supper. Amen? It says in 1 Corinthians 11, For I received from the Lord what I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus on the night when he was betrayed took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it, and said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, also, he took the cup after supper, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Let's bow. Dear Heavenly Father, we thank you for the privilege of remembering your precious sacrifice, your sacrifice in giving up your Son, and Jesus' sacrifice in giving up himself for us. All we can do back in return to you is be thankful, be grateful, and we thank you for this opportunity to remember you this way together as your adopted ones, as your redeemed ones. We are gratefully and joyfully your slaves forever. We thank you that you are a good, good God. Father, we ask that you bless us all today as we go and help us be zealous for good works. In the name of your precious Son, we pray. Amen.